0: In this episode of Ask Paul Curtly, I've collated questions about cold weather, cold weather camping, cold weather clothing, cold weather shelters and all my answers are in this episode. Welcome, welcome to episode 41 of Ask Paul Curtley. I'm in Scotland, I have just completed two Spay trips, two trips down the River Spay which I co-lead with Ray Goodwin under the auspices of Frontier Bushcraft. We've had a good couple of trips, canoeing trips and it's been a great time of year to be up here. Um, I'm into my third week in Scotland now and you can really see the changes. When we arrived uh, three weeks ago it was literally t-shirt weather, um, it was like the middle of summer, it was unseasonably warm and um, it's got progressively colder and colder and it's become progressively more autumnal as well. Um, things were a bit behind when we first arrived but now the birches have gone a full golden yellow, the larches have turned uh, are turning a nice yellow colour and we've had some other fantastic color down in the valleys from beech and from oaks as well as aspens there's been some fantastic colors from aspens this year golden yellows but also some pinks and reds and it's been a very very colorful few weeks and it continues to be very spectacular Um, loads and loads of berries up here this year as well loads of rowan berries and some of the other sorbus as well i saw some white beam and some swedish white beam the other day lots and lots of berries on everything this year and um yeah just very very autumnal um, hasn't been that frosty yet, we've had a few nights with frost here. Um, I'd have expected more by, uh, by this time in October but it is what it is. But we're starting to get some frost, it's certainly starting to feel a bit cooler and the hat is back. It's a good opportunity to talk about some more cold weather aspects of being outdoors but as we go into the shorter days and colder weather. Um, there's a few things on my blog at the moment around that topic as well so check those out and there will be a few video blogs or wild wanderings etc about my time up here in Scotland as well and some of the things that I've been doing so check those out on my blog as well at paulkirtley.co.uk if you're listening on the podcast you can go over there see the latest blogs if you're watching on YouTube again go over to paulkirtley.co.uk check out the latest blogs there right without further ado because we've got quite a few questions To get through, Um, I'm going to start. The first one is from Tony Hunt, and it's not really a question, as he admits himself. Um, Hi, Paul, not really a question, but thought you might like to mention the dangers of using gas stoves, hexamine stoves, etc. in tents. A few years ago, a friend of mine died from carbon monoxide poisoning using a gas lamp in a tent maybe a few people out there do not realize the risk enjoy your show as always Tony yeah absolutely and I have put a few things on my blog about camping in heated tents and you do need to be careful about carbon monoxide poisoning in tents that have some sort of heat source and particularly a wood stove or a lantern or Um, or or similar and generally if you've got an enclosed space that's relatively airtight you don't want to have a stove in there you don't want to have a lantern in there with heated tents uh, canvas tents like the tent teepees and the snow trekker tents and the bell tents with stoves in them There is a chimney which takes exhaust gases outside, but it doesn't mean to say that carbon monoxide can't build up inside the tent. You can get small electronic carbon monoxide um, alarms, a little bit like smoke alarms that you have in your home. And um, they're very, very useful because if you don't know about carbon monoxide, carbon monoxide is scentless it's uh, colorless and you don't know that it's there and the way that it kills you is basically your red blood cells prefer to have carbon monoxide adhered to them than oxygen so you basically starve yourself of oxygen by breathing in carbon monoxide and you um, you become asphyxiated uh, effectively and it's not a nice way to go so you do need to be vigilant and the way that you're vigilant is not by checking for the gas, you have to make sure, uh, unless you've got an alarm, you have to make sure that you're doing the right thing. And the right thing is generally having a stove. You know, if you've got a camping stove, that has to be outside the tent. It has to be outside the snow shelter where it's got plenty of oxygen around it and you're not consuming the oxygen, giving out carbon monoxide as well as carbon dioxide and ending up without enough oxygen in there in that enclosed space with heated tents you need one of your signs is smoke coming in um, and you're not going to get carbon monoxide coming in generally without there being smoke because most of the exhaust gases are going out so when we camp in heated tents we generally have a fire watch we have somebody who is going to sit in front of the stove making sure the tent's nice and warm, feeding the stove, making sure that the tent's not getting too warm, that the chimney's not getting too hot, That you might have a tent fire, set fire to the canvas. But equally, if there's lots of smoke blowing back into the tent, there might be a a crosswind across the top of the chimney, then that can, when the stove's low, blow smoke back into the tent. If you're all asleep, that can introduce noxious gases as well which you don't want to be breathing in including carbon monoxide so having somebody that's able to manage the stove keep it running cleanly keep the keep the place smoke free is a really good way of avoiding the main dangers of having a wood burning stove in a canvas tent and that's something that i would recommend that you do in the long nights of winter it gets dark early it gets light late you can still get seven or eight hours of sleep and have everyone do a fire watch. So you might have 10 hours where people are going to be sleeping. And if there are four of you in the tent, you can each do a two hour fire watch and you can each get eight hours sleep. It's not that much of a difficulty. You just decide who's going to be next. And then when you've got that two hours, it's quite, you know, apart from putting the fire wood into the stove, you've got time to write notes, time to write a diary, time to read, time to reflect on your trip. Um, It's quite a good meets a little bit of me time when you're actually living in quite close proximity with other people all the time. So having that little bit of space, two hours to yourself, two hours to your own thoughts, two hours of peace and quiet, actually really quite pleasant it's not that much of an onerous task so I'd thoroughly recommend if you're living in a heated tent in the winter have a fire watch and then if you're in a in a quincy or a snow cave do not have a stove running inside it's a big big danger don't have a gas lantern running inside have a candle there's enough light from a candle and enough warmth actually from a candle to, uh, to, to raise the temperature to a more comfortable level. Clearly you don't want it to be too high within a snow shelter because you start to melt the snow and you get drips and you get moisture in your sleeping kit etc etc so a candle gives you lots of light reflects off the inside a nice warm glow can raise the temperature a few degrees and if it starts flickering and not getting enough oxygen it also tells you that there isn't enough oxygen in the shelter so that's a good thing to have you should always have something inside um, your snow shelter where you can have there's an air vent you can clear it so a a walking pole or a ski pole that you can clear, or at least a snow shovel handle where you can clear the hole that the air is gonna come in. That's useful to have as well um, and very, very important. And of course you should have a shovel inside your snow shelter as well in case it collapses or the front gets snowed over so you can dig your way out. But that's a, a slight aside. So generally do not have stoves, lanterns, fires, in enclosed spaces because you are at risk of carbon monoxide poisoning. So that is a good um, starting point from Tony Hunt. If that's worried you about say having a fire inside a group shelter in the woods like a debris um, like a bunch of lean-tos with a fire in the middle there is so much air coming in through holes in the top, holes in the side, holes in the door you're not that hermetically sealed in there that you're going to have any problems getting enough oxygen there it's it's very sealed shelters like closed tents Closed snow shelters that are the, the big issue there, and equally, it's the same way that people sitting in their garages with the engine running to stay warm, keeping the heater on. Maybe they've locked themselves out of the house. They park the car in the garage. They leave the engine running. They keep the heater on. The garage is f- filling up with carbon monoxide from the exhaust of the of the car. People have died from staying warm that way as well. So, whenever you've got combustion in an enclosed space, you should be trying to avoid that you want to get out of that situation you do not want to be in an enclosed space with combustion going on where the exhaust gases are in that space that is a way to die a fairly unpleasant and unnecessary death right got another question here and i think i've answered it actually from greg langer um greg asks um Well, he says, as always, thank you for producing brilliant content. Um, You're very welcome, Greg. And here he is talking uh, specifically about some of the snow shelter material that I've put out on video. There was one video particularly about building a um, a Quincy. I've also had some material in my Fjell tour um, film about the uh, ski tour that we did in Norway a few years back uh, where we had particularly bad weather. Amongst other things we did on that trip, we, we dug a snow shelter. Um, so there's been a few things about snow shelters on my blog and on my, uh, on my uh, material in, in the past. And Greg asks here specifically about the snow shelter. I was watching your bushcraft film about building the snow shelter and became curious of precautions around carbon monoxide in a snow shelter. I know ventilation is necessary, but how does one ensure that the vents do not get drifted in or plugged? Is the easier solution to simply put the candles heat source out before you fall asleep. I'm very curious of your techniques on the matter as I've been considering trying a night out in a snow shelter this coming winter. All right, Greg, so I think I've kind of partly answered your question already, but just to be clear about the answer to that specific question, um, there's a light aircraft coming over, but hopefully it doesn't pick up too much on the the microphone. Um, The answer is that that you're not gonna be at risk from a candle. And actually a candle is beneficial because as I mentioned in the previous point, um, you can use it as an indicator that it is not getting enough oxygen. It is not, burning a candle is not going to give off so much carbon monoxide or carbon dioxide that it's gonna be a problem. It burns very slowly, it burns a small amount. Um, it's not going to be a problem. And if it does start flickering, if it's struggling to burn properly, if it's struggling to combust properly, that's a sign that there's not enough oxygen in your shelter. Um, And it's normally when it's getting down, you know, normal amount in air is about 21% as it's dropping below 20, 18, towards 16, that's when things stop burning properly. So that will give you an indication that there's not enough oxygen in there. Um, In terms of ventilation, yes, absolutely. Clearly you want to be warm in a snow shelter, so you don't want it open to the elements um, where you're getting lots of cold air coming in but you do want some ventilation because otherwise it becomes quite stale in there there's lots of carbon dioxide from you breathing and you want to make sure you've got some fresh air coming in so the way you normally do that for example with most snow shelters is to start with you want to be up and away from the lowest part of the shelter um, and then you'll have a cold well in the bottom so the coldest air will drop there and that's normally at the same level or slightly higher than the door. The door can drop down because again again, then cold air can drop down and out of the door. What we normally do is put a rucksack or a couple of day sacks in the doorway. Now that's not going to completely seal it because they don't match the shape perfectly but it will stop drafts coming in but it will allow some oxygen and cold air to drop out. What you then want to be able to do is suck some cold Um, or fresh air in, not too much of course, but enough for breathing. So if you think about the size of a breathing hole, if you had to breathe through the snow, you want something where you can comfortably breathe through that, and if there's a couple of you, enough for for you to do that. So what we find is if you take the the shaft of a snow shovel, for example, and put a hole in, not directly over any of the sleeping platforms, because then you get cold air coming down directly onto you, normally away towards your feet, away um, from you, over the cold well you'll get cold air dropping in fresh air from outside cycling through and the cold air dropping out and that will flush out any any staleness so and in terms of keeping that from drifting over having something inside to keep it clear um, now um, a, a ski pole can be good poke that through um, an extended snow shovel handle can be good poke that through something like that keep that inside the shelter and as I say you also want to keep a snow shovel inside the shelter as well I've certainly had it where the door has drifted over um where you've then had to dig your way out in the morning um, in terms of the candle, you can keep that running. Use the sort of long um, burn, the sort of nine hour candles, make a little uh, shelf for the candle somewhere in the middle. If say it's a two person shelter, I'm sleeping on this side, somebody else is sleeping on that side, cold well in the middle, back of the shelter, put the candle in there, gives a nice light. You can keep it running all night. And if you wake up, you can check that it's, that it's, um, f- that it's not flickering. Um, but as I say, in the previous question, just don't have gas stoves you know sort of camping stoves whether it's gas or white gas or petrol or, or um, diesel or kerosene or anything else like that burning inside such a sealed shelter that's a real hazard um, and it's not something that you should be doing And with a snow shelter, just thinking that you said, candle stroke heat source, with a snow shelter, you don't want a heat source in there. Candle is enough. You being in there will help raise the temperature. Candle will help raise the temperature. You don't want it above about zero because then your shelter starts to melt from the inside out. Right, next question. Food for exhausting day hikes in Norwegian mountains. Now this isn't specifically about cold weather, but, um calories are more important in colder uh, times and uh, not getting exhausted is more important in shorter days you need to get to where you need to be with the energy that you need to to have in colder weather that's more critical in colder temperatures than it is in balmy uh, summer temperatures so uh, michael puffer asks hi paul i'm living in norway and we spend a good part of our summer holidays hiking in the mountains unfortunately where i live and hike in mid-norway mountains aren't very rocky but have a lot of marshy areas which makes traveling quite exhausting on our last day hike where we hiked for several hours to cover about 10 kilometers in such terrain i got really exhausted and felt totally tapped off energy it was very difficult to move forward and keep going Although our goal for the day was already in sight, but still two kilometers away. This didn't have anything to do with dehydration because we were drinking a lot of water during the day, but I think I was really just running out of energy. So therefore I was wondering if you could give me some tips on how to prevent such situations and how to deal with them. What food should I eat before, during, and after exhausting hikes that keep me going? Thanks a lot for your help in advance. I'm a big admirer of your work. Best regards, Michael. Okay, Michael well I'm going to have to make a few assumptions here about you and um, uh, and, and a few of the aspects I'm assuming you' reasonably fit um, you're talking about wanting to cover you know quite a few kilometers not 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 tons by anybody's standards but a reasonable number but a few things just to check off first if you are not fit for hiking then you would find that sort of rough terrain hiking pretty hard going where i am in scotland at the moment you get into the hills here there's a lot of peat hags you're dropping down into into eroded peat bog you having to climb out on wet terrain go a little way drop down again it can be meters and meters up and down as well in some places it's almost like doing an assault course covering you know, trying to cover a straight line in some places. And in that type of terrain, it is very tiring. You don't get into a rhythm with your walking, you're you're getting wet. And um, at the end of the day, when you've already walked quite a long way, it can be quite frustrating as well. So I think you, in your mind, you probably need to separate, is it frustration? Is it exhaustion? Is it just you want to be there and you're not there already? You can, And it's interesting that you say you can see the end in sight in this instance, but it was hard going in the first place. And sometimes that can be the hardest. You know that you're nearly there, but it's really, really tough. Um, That can be psychologically harder than just getting through it and then carrying on because you've got the rest of the day to go if in your head you, you you're thinking well i've you know i'm only a couple of kilometers away i should be there in uh, 30 minutes and then you come across something that's really difficult to cover and it takes you two hours that can be quite demoralizing unless you have a have a bit of a word with yourself so separate out those things as well when it comes down to food um you, you, you say you were well hydrated, you say you're drinking lots of water, lots of water means different things to different people. In summer conditions, when it's breezy but warm, you're sweating, you wanna be drinking three liters of water per day at least. Get a liter of water in you, at least half a liter first thing, liter of water into you in the morning, drink a liter during the day, get another liter in the evening. Often that's not enough. On long, hot summer hikes, I would be drinking um, half a litre to a litre in the morning and I'll probably drink two or three litres during the day if I'm walking from say nine until six and then I'm certainly going to get more fluid into me in the evening Um not too close to bedtime because that makes you need to get up for a pee but once I've stopped I'm going to make a big mug of tea, I'm going to have some food that's quite sloppy, I might have a soup Um, so get some fluids and some nutrients into me as well as then the main meal Um, and if you're hiking in an area that's quite boggy or it's got streams there isn't going to be any shortage of water so make sure you are getting that in. So again you said you were drinking plenty of water but just to be sure three to five litres a day in those sorts of conditions to make sure you're in as good a condition the next day as possible. In terms of food, um, think about the number of calories that you need. Most grown men need at least two and a half thousand calories per day. Um, and if you're working hard, particularly if you're doing steep hills or carrying load, you may need more than that. If you're, if you're not eating enough carbohydrate, you won't burn your fats efficiently, so you wanna make sure you've got enough carbs. And to start off with the day before, you wanna make sure that you're eating complex carbohydrates so your glycogen is topped up, your glycogen is stored in your liver, some in your muscles and a little bit in your blood. So make sure your glycogen is topped up, you know, a pasta meal or a rice meal, based meal the night before your hike, Um, will get you started then you want something in the morning that's going to keep you going again uh, it doesn't have to be exclusively carbohydrates but you want some carbs in there maybe some porridge oats maybe some wholemeal bread and some eggs or something like that that that's going to keep you going for a long time or um, uh some some granola um that's got nuts it's got fruit it's got um some carbs in there as you know in terms of wheat um and other grains as well as some fat and it's tasty with a with a bit of milk or juice or something that that's going to give you plenty of energy to start on and start during the day um to keep you going during the day but start you off well um, then you want to have a reasonable lunch. I don't like having big lunches when I'm hiking. I tend to eat oat biscuits when I'm hiking. I'll have a few with a bit of cheese or something or a, or a small packet of tuna at lunchtime. And other than that, when I'm walking, I will just have snacks if I feel like I need them and if I feel like my blood sugar is dropping. Because remember, if your blood sugar drops when too low when you're hiking, that's when you start to make mistakes of judgment as well. Your brain needs Um, and runs primarily, um, unless you train it otherwise, it it runs primarily on uh, glucose and you need to make sure that your blood sugar is high enough to provide the glucose to your system. And if you're burning a lot in your muscles, if you're burning a lot of your blood sugar in your muscles, then maybe your brain isn't getting enough. You start making mistakes with um, navigation, timings, all those sorts of things, and you get more irritable as well. Um, so keeping your blood sugar up is, is is worthwhile. In the first instance, you want to be eating relatively complex carbohydrates. I find cereal bars, granola bars, ones that aren't too sweet. A lot of those breakfast bars have a hell of a lot of simple sugars in them. They're not great. So, you know, like a granola bar or some of the healthy, healthy bars, the organic bars that are more complex with less sugar in um, are better. Or something like dried um, dried banana chips are good. Some nuts are good because again they're not really carbs, but there's a slow drip of fat in there. So a mixture of snacks, and you know one of the classic things, and there's a reason it's a classic, is make up a trail mix. Make up a mix of dried fruit. Um, so you could put raisins and sultanas in there. You could put some. Um, dried banana maybe coated in coconut oil chuck that in some people like dried apricots although a lot of them contain a lot of um uh, sulfite sulfuric acid and and other issues um but you know as long as you don't have too much of any one thing it's not going to be an issue so put your preferred dried fruit some nuts maybe some m&ms or similar in there and you've got or chocolate buttons or something like that, shake it all up and then just grab when you're feeling a bit low, grab a handful of that in your face, slurp of water and on you go. That's one of the best things to be to be doing on a hike and you look forward to the different flavours you've got a lot of variety in there so that's something to be eating and then when you get to camp or a cabin or wherever you're going in the evening again try and stock up so make sure you're having a, a meal that has some carbohydrates in there so rehydrated potato some rice some pasta anything like not all of them but one of those plus some protein and something that's going to be tasty all mixed up make sure you've got plenty. Work out the calories, particularly if you're doing multi-day hikes, um, work out the calories. Um, there's a video on my YouTube channel, I will link to it, and also um, a video It's on my blog as well. And there's also an article on my blog with further information about the calorie and nutrition, macro nutritional content of a menu that I put together from things just from the supermarket. So not from specialist camping foods, which many of are good if you buy the right ones um, but this is just relatively inexpensive off the supermarket shelf which is applicable in many parts of the world you can pull that together and that menu is a seven day menu which will fit into a large 10 litre side pocket of a rucksack the PLCE side pocket and for those people who've asked what PLCE mean it just means personal load carrying equipment it's just a British military term for a standard zip system which fits onto a standard um, rucksack with that zip system so any PLCE pouch will fit onto a PLCE equipped rucksack And so the idea was to get a whole week's menu in that side pocket and you can do that at about 3000 calories a day. If you need more than that, then clearly you're going to need more space. But you can do that in a lot of it's dehydrated. But have a look at that video. I'll link to it here. But also for those of you that have got criticisms of that, also have a look at the nutritional um, article as well which I will link to here it's all on my blog as well you can find that there that should give you plenty of ideas Michael and anybody else that's interested in that um, and the other good thing about that article if you go to my blog about the menu there's lots and lots of comments where people have put other suggestions things that they prefer things that they have found in other parts of the world things things that they've substituted for some of the ideas that I have lots of great ideas there there's no shortage of menu ideas so go to that um, how to fit a week's worth of food in a PLCE um, side pocket uh, article and video on my blog and all of that stuff is there and that'll be super helpful for you. Anoraks for cold weather. This is from Ray Tellier. Hi Ray, good to hear from you again. Um, He says, hi Paul, many thanks for your videos. I'm gearing up for colder weather. Not to sound like a beginner, but how does a canvas anorak keep you warm? Okay, so in really cold conditions, um, cotton anoraks are very good and a lot of people these days will raise their eyebrows at that because in the last 20 to 30 years we've all been brought up on in the mainstream outdoors we've been brought up on Gore-Tex triple point and similar breathable membrane fabrics and they are the de facto now you know ex- accepted outdoor shell And they do work very well. They work very well at keeping the rain off. They do very well at keeping the wind off. They're not as breathable as some windproof, but not so waterproof um, products. But they do a good as a a one-stop shell. You know, some sort of Gore-Tex Pro shell or uh, Event or Triple Point. Very, very good. That said, in the cold, you don't really need it to be waterproof. If you're thinking about a snowy environment that is going to be consistently below zero, where it's freeze dried, um, you don't need the waterproofing of a Gore-Tex fabric. Um, And in fact, a lot of breathable membranes don't work very well in really cold conditions because a breathable membrane relies on the water vapor. So you you sweat, the water is vaporized by your body heat. It goes maybe wicked out by a wicking base layer and then it goes to evaporate from your body. It needs to get through that membrane, that shell layer that's on the outside. Now, it needs to stay a vapor all the way through. If in going through that um, membrane, that, that almost, it's almost a barrier, but not quite, it's a barrier to water coming in because it's not a vapor, but it allows vapor out, If it gets cool enough that it condenses then it's not going to escape the system and that's the problem in really cold conditions with breathable membranes is that the water doesn't transport to the outside and you get water on the inside. You can get frost on the inside just in the same way as if you use a Gore-Tex bivy bag in sub-zero temperatures you can get frost on the inside of the bivy bag because the, the vapor from your body doesn't escape the system. the best way with a bivvy bag to deal with that, by the way, just as an aside is in the morning, turn it inside out and just shake the frost off before it melts. And that keeps the system relatively dry and and moisture free. Um, But going back to clothing, what you actually want is something that's relatively um, breathable compared to some of those vapor barrier um, or or vapor allowing um, systems that stop the water coming in. So, Cotton or ventile or canvas actually works very well for that. Now, a lot of people, as I say, will raise their eyebrows at that as well because we've been drilled cotton is the death cloth. It, if you wear cotton in the outdoors, you will die. If you wear cotton close to your skin and it gets wet and then it gets cold, that is a bad place to be. Jeans are not a great outdoor clothing for the northern temperate. Um, environment either here and um, because when they get wet they're very hard to dry things like Norwegian army shirts nice and warm in the cold um, the, the typical old um, Norgy shirt um, that a lot of British military people wore it's it's cotton with a terry looping on the inside nice in, in cold dry conditions shite they get wet they're just a a bag of wet sogginess that you can't do anything with until you get them over a radiator or or in a drying room so what you want um, is not cotton close to your skin you want merino or synthetic wicking base layers close to your skin you want some good intermediate warm layers and you want an outer warm layer again i've got videos on layers i've got articles on layers i've got videos on clothing combinations and then in terms of shell in cold weather the the anorak the cotton or canvas or ventile anorak won't keep you warm in and of itself it's not an insulating layer but what it will do is it will allow moisture to escape efficiently and the last thing you want to be doing in cold conditions is getting wet you may have to regulate your um, your your activity you may have to ventilate and waft hot air out of your clothing when you're working hard, but generally something that's as breathable as possible in terms of allowing moisture out, but stopping um, snow and ice getting into your clothing is what you want. cotton works very, very well for that. Um, It's also hard wearing if you're in the boreal forest, if you're carrying logs, if you're, if you're, um, if you're working hard and you're pushing through and you know you're on snowshoes and you're breaking trail and you're pulling a toboggan and and everything's pulling against you and you've got a cord across your shoulder or if you're um, you know you're skiing through the woods with a backpack on or whatever it is if you're in cold conditions a cotton anorak works very very well for that it's abrasion resistant it's also relatively heat resistant so if you're near hot stoves if you're near fires if you're having a long log fire or another or a small lunch fire outside you are not at risk of melting it like you are with a plastic based with a petrochemical based um, product which all of those um all of those breathable membrane jackets are made of they're made of plastic at the end of the day so the jacket itself to answer your question Ray the jacket itself won't keep you warm but what it will do is it will allow moisture out it will keep the wind off and therefore the warm air close to you warm air that's trapped inside won't be displaced away it will allow moisture out and it will allow your clothing to stay relatively dry both in terms of snow and ice getting on and moisture getting out it will retain um, heat and it will stop cold winds getting to you so my top choice for sub-zero environments is a ventile smock and if you're going to be at the cusp of the seasons get a double layered ventile smock so that if you do get a bit of rain or freezing rain it will actually work well in those conditions as well so that's um that's where i'm coming from and hopefully that gives you a uh, suitably detailed answer for you to make some decisions about your clothing but if you've got further questions about specific items or combinations then just drop me a line but in the show notes I will link to a number of articles I've written about winter clothing. I will link to a video here as well about some of the layer combinations I use in the Northern temperate. I talk a bit about ventile there, but if you want the really cold stuff, go across to my blog, you will find in the show notes under Ask Paul Kirtley episode 41 links to all the relevant stuff there. There's more than I can link to in the video here for those of you that are watching on YouTube. And um, clearly, if you're listening via podcast, just go over, as you normally do, to my blog and get all of the links that are relevant to this episode. Okay, next one. This one is from Leah Ramika Dugan, and her question is, um, I've been searching for a wilderness skiing bespoke course, a few of the basics. I've just completed an expedition and wilderness medicine course, but some of the elements would be completely different having watched your video i'm assuming leah you're talking about my fjell tour video again for those that have not seen that it's it's a 50 minute film it's a little feature little documentary film about one of our trips that we made it's not on youtube if you're watching this on youtube um, or if you're listening on my podcast and then you go to youtube to try and find it it is on my blog i will link to it here in the video and it will there'll be a link in the show notes to fjell tour as well Um, a lot of people have missed that film because it's not on youtube Um, but it is a nice little film i'm quite proud of it and um, have a look at that if you've not seen it and i think that's what leah is referring to because that's the main thing i've done about a wilderness um, backcountry skiing trip on my blog um (laughs) she says i'm not as tough as you were in the video in norway but would like a largely step down version of this type of course Well, you never know how tough you are, Leah, uh, until you you try. A lot of people are tougher than they think they are. We're all pretty much made of the same stuff, and a lot of it's what goes on up there. And I notice you've got a doctorate and um, you're interested in wilderness skills, and therefore you've probably got the right stuff up there as well. To to achieve what you need to achieve in the outdoors, so don't undersell yourself. But I understand, start within your comfort zone and then and then push. So, Leah's final part of the question is, could you possibly help? I have a cross I have cross country skied nowhere near as good and proficient, but would like to try to increase my skill level, even if I can't match your skills in the video. Well, you're very self-deprecating, Leah. Um, don't be so um, don't be so much. Uh, uh, an un- underrating of your own abilities. If you cross country skied before, um, if you've got the determination to finish a doctorate and um, you're interested in wilderness skills, wilderness medicine, then I think you can certainly undertake a wilderness skiing trip. Now, clearly you don't wanna be doing that on your own. Um, even experienced people would you know, stop, uh, probably have to think very hard about making a serious wilderness trip by, uh, by skis on their own. Um, in in very tough country but um, you can certainly find groups to go with and um, Exodus, uh, a company which I have no connection with whatsoever, I know Exodus do some cross-country skiing trips in Norway and they're very clearly graded as to how difficult they are and so you could go and choose one of those you've skied before you could go and choose one of those trips that was suitable for you and go out with other people that are at the same level with a guide with an instructor that is going to take you and look after you in that in that environment and then as you build experience you can go through the harder um the harder trips and that's something that i would consider doing if i were you um and this is a common problem that we have that You know, it's the same with canoeing, it's the same with snowshoeing, it's the same with cross-country skiing, that it's something that we see, we see other people doing, we might see an inspirational photograph on Facebook, we might read an interesting article in Sidetracked magazine, you might see one of my videos, you might see something on on, um, National Geographic channel or Discovery channel and you think, I wanna go and do that. But then, you know, you might have lots of good friends, but very few of them probably are interested in doing something like that and even if they are interested in doing something like that maybe the amount of training equipment purchase etc that's required would put a lot of them off and so we're often in this situation where we have a real burning desire to go and do something but we can't find other people to do it with and so organised trips like that are often a good way to do that you know whether it's a canoeing trip like the ones we've just done on the River spay whether it's a an exodus skiing trip whether it's um you know a, another provider doing something where it's bringing together people who are like-minded and what you may find is the people who are most like-minded on those trips over time you might agree well let's do the let's do the level 2 next year let's go and do Let's go and do another canoeing trip with Paul and Ray in Canada next year. Let's go and do the level three skiing trip next year. We did the level two last year. And you go through those experiences together. And then you might even, aside from that, get together with other people that you've met on those trips who have had the same training or similar training and experience to you. You can trust them, you understand their background, you get on with them, you've kept in touch via social media or email and you can then plan your own trips and go and do your own trips so that's the way that I would start if you're on your own you've got an aspiration to go and do that find a collective trip and in the case of the skiing I know that Exodus do some good trips and um, the Norwegian Touring Association DNT also do some organized trips but I would double check to see whether or not you can if you don't speak Norwegian how easy it is for you to join those but I know they do do some organized tours as well and some very good tours so those are the two options that I would look at the DNT the Norwegian Trekking Association they do some organized tours and Exodus um, do some tours as well in Norway so check those out. Okay, a couple of questions about quincies. Ah, from our old friend Wellsby Roots, Dave Wellsby on Instagram, this question is from. And there's a, he's, he's, he's pinched one of my photos from somewhere on my blog. And he, it's not from the Quincy video he refers to, but he says, Great Quincy video, Paul. Would it be unwise to put the snow taken out on top to add? thickness in principle Dave there's no issue with that because at the end of the day what you want is a space inside that is um, that is the right size and as long as you've made a mound of snow big enough in the first place hollowing it out will give you that in- internal space that you need um, what you you w- what you don't want to do though is make something too small with the thought that by the time I throw the stuff on the outside it will be big enough because it won't be frozen on the outside and then you'll dig through the crust to try and make it bigger and you'll end up with a collapsed shelter. So as long as the mound's big enough in the first place there's no issue with throwing it on the on the outside in terms of function of the inside of the shelter. The thing to think about though is how do you know when you've dug far enough? If you watch my Quincy video you'll know that I just used the amount of light coming through the walls as an indicator of the thickness of the wall. Now clearly if you're putting more snow on the outside, you're going to block out some of that light coming through and that might throw you off. But if you're using the technique where you put sticks all of the same length through the outside, a bit like the guy from Hellraiser where you where all the nails sticking out, um, it ends up looking like that with um with sticks all the way you push those in once you get to the end of the sticks you know it's thick enough if you're putting snow on the outside of that and you get to the stick it doesn't matter because you know that you've got to the right thickness of the frozen uh, crusted material Um, it's not going to collapse the shelter Um, they should be strong enough to take a little bit of snow on top Um, the question then really is do you want to use the snow to extend your entrance uh, tunnel just to make it more protected um, or do you want to put it somewhere else so in principle, no issues, but just bear in mind those couple of things that I that I mentioned. Um, candles for Quinseys. We've talked about candles and snow shelters. This is another question from Wellesby Roots. Um, actually, this is this is uh, this is from Twitter. I wonder if the previous said the previous one was on Instagram no they're both Twitter actually apologies previous one was from Twitter this is also from Twitter so two questions about Quincy's from Dave on Twitter Um, so we've we talked about having uh, candles in snow shelters a couple of times on this episode and this is what Wellsby's asking about he's saying hey Paul in a Quincy or other snow shelter what kind of candle would you use beeswax is non-toxic yeah I mean paraffin wax is fine um beeswax is fine the main thing you want is something that's quite long life i.e long burning and those nine hour um or even I think you can get 12 hour candle lantern uh, candles are very good they will burn a bit faster away from a candle lantern but in the shelter of a Quincy they're not going to get a lot of airflow onto them making them burn faster so they should burn quite a long time even in a snow shelter outside of a candle lantern and those are the ones that I, I carry for snow shelter so in my standard winter camping winter whether it's ski touring or snow um, even if I'm going with a, with, a, with a heated tent, I will take a couple of long life paraffin wax candles with me in case I'm snow um, holing or building a quincy. If I know I'm going to be in a quincy um, for a length of time, then I will take more. But just as part of my almost not quite survival pack, but just in case bits and pieces, I take a couple of long life candles of the candle lantern variety you'll get those in any outdoor store outfitters i'm sure last question from mark spooner and this is about toilets in cold and sweaty clothes (laughs) and his question is hi paul always enjoy your youtube videos i've learned so much from them and putting them into practice i have two questions for you okay i'll let you off How do you deal with things like toilet issues in very cold weather when the ground is solid or you're in icy conditions? Number two, when hiking or climbing anywhere, I tend to sweat and get hot even in freezing weather on the hike and then get that horrible cold wet feeling when arrived at the destination. What can you recommend to help manage heat and sweaty clothes? Um, Well, I'll answer the second one first, Mark. Um, We've already talked a bit about clothes in this um, in this episode and I won't go over what I've already said. Um, You generally want to have a good um, wicking base layer. My preference in in cold conditions is for a thin merino base layer next to my skin. Um, You might get a little bit uh, damp in, in wool next to your skin but wool actually gets slightly warmer when it gets slightly damp it doesn't stay as warm when it's completely wet that's a a common misunderstanding but there is an exothermic reaction when wool fibers take up moisture and that actually helps keep you warm and counteracts the fact that it's it's a little bit damp but That's only a a relatively small percentage moisture uptake. Um, It will give out moisture more slowly, but it will give it out gradually. A lot of synthetic materials are great for high energy, you know, like high energy cross-country skiing, cross-country ski racing, biathlon, mountain biking, you know, doing really high energy stuff, trail running, um, fell running, those sorts of things, they get moisture away from you quickly because you're generating a lot of heat and potentially a lot of moisture quickly, but in slightly slower, you know, steadier conditions, that quick wicking can actually cool you down a bit too much. But then again, that's maybe what you need. Maybe you're just getting too hot, but I would imagine it's the combination. Maybe you're wearing too many layers. First off, really old principle, um, but it still stands true. Be bold, start cold. Many people will start a hike, particularly in cold weather, wearing what makes them feel comfortable at the beginning of the hike. Then they'll start moving and after five minutes, they'll start to be too warm and unless you adjust your clothing layers you're going to end up continuing to generate or at least trap too much heat because you're going to be generating that heat anyway you're trapping too much heat that gives your body the signal that it's getting too hot you start sweating and that puts moisture into your clothing and then as you say when you stop you get that horrible cold clammy feeling and um, actual a physical reduction in temperature because you can't stay warm at the end and you put yourself at greater risk of hypothermia so what you want to be doing is starting off feeling like i'm a bit chilly here you know on a cross-country skiing trip i might just start off wearing a merino base layer and a shell that's it and gloves and a hat and i'm cold when i'm standing still but as soon as i start moving i'm skiing with a backpack on I warm up to a temperature where I'm where I'm happy. If after 10 20 minutes I am not at the right temperature, I might if I've misjudged it and I need another layer on, then I will put another layer on. But the the, the general mistake is that people start off their hike up a, up a mountain, their their hike in a, in cold conditions, they're skiing in cross country skiing in cold conditions, snowshoeing in cold conditions they'll start off wearing too much and then when they start exerting, they'll get too hot, they'll get sweaty. So that's the main thing to look at. Then if you're worried about getting cold when you stop, if you stop for a quick break, if you stop um, to have a have a drink or take on a quick snack and you're stopping more than a, a moment, what you want to have is at the top of your day pack or the top of your or your rucksack is a down jacket or a good quality synthetic jacket that squashes down that will go over everything that you're wearing what we would tend to call a mothership jacket so good quality down puff it out put it on over the top of everything you're not then having to take off your shell layer put on another layer put on your shell layer in the wind with mittens and gloves and things just chuck it on over the top zip it up maybe put a bigger hat on or put the hood up if it's got a hood and you're gonna be nice and toasty, have your your hot chocolate, have your drink, whatever you're having, chocolate bar or a cereal bar, put that away, jacket off, in your rucksack, back on, off you go. That is the best thing to do to to regulate your temperature between exertion and stop. And if you do that, then you should maintain a better temperature during the day rather than relying on trying to wear too many layers because you're worried about getting cold to start off with and then unzipping them and venting Um, because you're generating too much heat. Now, that said, think about other ways of ventilating if you are generating too much heat regardless of that have a shell layer that's got pit zips like ventilated um, armpit zips that allow um, moisture and air to circulate and get rid of some of that moisture there think about using zips on the front you can if you're getting way way too hot say you've got a really steep section of trail and you've just got too hot going up it just stop get hold of your um, lapels, unzip the front, and do that, like if you're watching the video, I'm lifting, you can see what I'm doing, but if you're not, basically, I'm not gonna grab hold of my collar because the microphone's there and it'll go all roughly, but basically, get hold of your collar, and lift the clothes away from yourself and then squeeze it back in using your forearms and your elbows like a bellows and to, to push out the hot air and the moisture from near your chest. A few blows like that in cold weather, you'll you'll quickly feel like you're coming down in temperature. That's enough and that's a really good trick that I learned from Lars Falt actually, working with him up in the north northern forests um, years ago. And it really, really does cool you down very, very quickly. So that's a good trick. Um, right sort of headwear often people put hats on that are too big in cold weather and then again you lose a lot of heat from your head but equally you can get too hot by wearing a hat that's too big. So if it's really quite cold, you don't want to be wearing no headgear because you, your brain can literally get cold. You know, that brain freeze that you get from eating ice cream, you can kind of get that from hiking or skiing in cold weather without a hat on. You can be generating a lot of heat and, and your extremities are warm, but your head's getting a bit too cold and that can give you bad judgment. It can give you a headache. Um, it can make, make you make um, navigational errors. So a thin, beanie again thin merino or similar beanie just to keep the outside of your head warm but you're still losing a lot of heat and then again when you stop you can put a hood up um you know anorak hood and then your mothership jacket hood over the top to keep that heat in without losing any more so you need to be very active in managing your clothing not just taking layers on and off but using it um as effectively as possible however expensive your outdoor clothing is it will not manage itself yet. Yeah, the best Gore-Tex jacket or ventile jacket or mothership jacket or winter anorak or whatever it is that you're using and the layers that go with it, bigger plane going over, um, they will not unzip themselves. The hoods will not go up and down on their own. The cuffs will not tighten and loosen on their own. Um, Gloves and mittens will not exchange on your hands on their own, you have to do that as the user. So I would recommend, be bold, start cold, make sure after 10 minutes, 15 minutes that your temperature is right, adjust layers then, if necessary, putting another layer on if you're too cold. When you stop for a break, mothership on, hood up, take on, don't stop for more than about five minutes, everything back out. Off you go again. If you're on a particularly steep or strenuous part of the trail, ventilation, armpit zips, cuffs, wafting, bellowing out hot air if necessary, make sure you've got the right headgear on. Those are all really important elements of managing your clothing in cold particularly when you're going from exerting yourself to being stationary and hopefully using those you'll get to the end of your trip without being so tired without being so dehydrated and without having to deal with so much moisture in your clothing hopefully that helps you and yes i know some people have said to me you repeat yourself i know i repeat myself on some things because i'm thinking and consolidating a particular thought and adding to it as something else comes to the fore I'm adding it I'm adjusting what I've just said but also at the end I'm not repeating myself I'm summarizing what I've just said so that it's all there as bullet points for people to take away so rather than having to meander through everything again to make sure they've got all the points they're all there at the end so it's not repetition it's summary <laughs> before I go into a rant Oh, toilets. You had a question about toilets. This is the danger of asking question, two questions in one mark. Toilets. How do you deal with things like toilet issues, very cold weather when the ground is solid or you're in icy conditions? Well, in snow um the, the same the same issues with pollution of watercourses exist in winter as they do in summer, for example. So, you wouldn't go to the toilet, you wouldn't defecate next to a stream or, or in a stream in summer because you're polluting the water. Same in the winter. You can tell where the streams are, even if they're covered over. The depressions in the snow, or if it, even if it's frozen or not running, you can tell the low points in the landscape. Those are going to be the water courses. Go to the toilet away from them. First off, if it's really deep snow, what we tend to do is um, trample an area if we're camping in an area for for uh, more than a, a short period trample an area like we would to make a tent platform, flatten it so that it's it's crusty on the top. We leave a snow shovel there and then when we go to the toilet we dig it dig down to the ground and then um do your business and then cover it over. Always burning toilet paper because again the the the, the feces will break down remember all the animals are going to the toilet in the forest you know the moose and the reindeer and the bears and the wolves and all these animals do shit in the woods Um, the old adage does a bear shit in the woods yes it does Um, now clearly we can transfer diseases into the environment and pass them on to other humans if we're not careful about where we're going now in summer months it's best practice to dig down in the top few centimeters of the soil where most of the bacteria are, defecate in there, cover it over, again making sure you don't leave toilet paper because it takes a long time to break down. The bacteria will deal with the feces very very quickly. In frozen ground that's harder to do. Um, I would suggest in the first instance take a digging tool that allows you to dig into relatively frozen ground if you can't get into the frozen ground and if it's snowy then at least dig into the snow and cover it over and as the snow melts and the sun gets on it and insects start coming out in the spring that it will be taken care of by the environment at that time but the important thing Is to not go near to watercourses. You want any residual um, effects to be going into the ground and being filtered by the ground and being dealt with by bacteria, and not going into watercourses. If you're in high altitude areas where the ground is often frozen, the advice is slightly different. The advice is often to smear the faeces on rock so it's spread thin so that the sun gets to it the ultraviolet deals with any um, organisms there that might cause a problem the organic matter gets dealt with by flies and other other um, other uh, species that will that will feed on that as unsavory as it seems everything is always interested in eating something else one animal's waste is another animal's food you see flies on on feces all over the world, um, but in the mountains when there's frozen ground and there's not a lot of bacterial action in the ground, even in the summer, the best practice, as far as I understand it, is to smear on a rock, clearly don't do it near to a cabin or um, where somebody's gonna come across it, but if you're out away from somewhere where there's, a, where there's an organized toilet in a cabin or a hut or what have you, and you need to go, and it's not gonna break down in the soil, then that smearing action is considered to be the best practice. So hopefully that helps Mark. Um, And that brings us to the end. So thanks again for your questions. Um, It is cooling off here, it's it's towards the end of the day. It's just gone five o'clock here when I'm recording this at the end of the day. And I can feel the temperature dropping it's going to be another relatively cool night but as I say not as cold as maybe you'd expect at this time of year so don't think we're going to get any stars tonight had a good view of the Milky Way last night not a lot of light pollution where I am so you could see the big dipper or the plow whatever you want to call it part of Ursa Major you could see Cassiopeia and nicely you could see Cassiopeia sitting in the uh, Milky Way there. Um, Really nice uh, view of the stars and then Orion coming up later on. Um, We had a full moon a week ago and you couldn't see many stars but we're down to a quarter moon now when I'm recording this. Um, It'll be probably almost um, no moon or, or a new moon by the time this comes out in probably nearly another week's time by the time I get it up online um but this is a really good time of year to be looking at the stars as well so um if you've got any natural navigation questions um i didn't get many questions for andy about hunting or deer stalking i think i got one one really useful one um not enough to make a show around unfortunately so that's been shelved for the time being in terms of having Andy on as a guest maybe another time but again as we go into the winter if you've got any more questions about winter camping camping out in cold weather all of those sorts of things send them in questions about natural navigation particularly with the stars this time of year is a really good time of year to be looking at the stars so if you've got questions about that if you're looking you know it's going to be dark fairly soon i'm going to be seeing the stars this time of year four or five six hours earlier than i am in the summer um great time to be out not too late but learning a lot about the stars and finding direction so questions about that would be welcome but any of your questions as usual i know i've got a backlog i am actually getting through the backlog now i had a look earlier today i managed to get online went through new questions there weren't that many new questions that have come in in the last few weeks so i am actually chewing my way through the backlog uh, as well without their backlog being filled up but again if you've got seasonal questions get them over to me and i'll get them answered anyway i've rambled on for long enough i'm going to go and uh finish off my day hopefully you have a good day and a good weekend too thanks for watching ask paul curtley and i will speak to you on episode 42 and maybe we will find the answer to life the universe and everything in that episode take care Bye bye